You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I think we'll kick off. Uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, day one of our Arts and Humanities Research Festival. And you're all very welcome. And it just gives me so much pleasure to introduce uh, one of my long-standing colleagues at this point, um, Chris Morash from the School of English. And Chris is the Seamus Heaney Professor of Irish Writing in Trinity College, and he's many, many things beyond that. When we decided to run this week as a festival and not as a formal conference, it meant we could dispense with long uh, scholarly introductions for colleagues. Um, and in Chris's case, that's a very good thing, because if I were to have to run through all his publications, all his career highlights, uh, all his many titles, we'd be here for the guts of half a day, I'd expect. So we're going to cut straight to the chase. Many of you will know his work. He's a world-leading expert in Irish theatre, uh, both history and practice. Uh, he is a, a renowned critic. Uh, he is uh, working at the cutting edge of arts and humanities disciplines. Uh, and he's also a very, very fine literary scholar. And just earlier this year, he published a wonderful book on writing and the city of Dublin, which was highly acclaimed, very well reviewed indeed. Um, and Chris, I don't know what you're working on at the moment apart from gossip. Oh, oh a of book course. on literary gossip. A book on literary gossip. So <laughs> when that's finished, you'll be back in to talk about it. Yeah. But today, Chris is talking about time, landscape, technology, and this is a subject I wanted to hear him talk on for quite some time. So I'm delighted to be joining you all to listen to him. He's going to talk on deep time encounters, technology, landscape, and Irish modernism. Over to you, Chris. Thank, thank you very much, Eve, for that characteristically generous introduction. Thank you very, very much. That's great. Um, you asked to keep this informal, so I, I, I'm going to keep this informal. And as, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking to myself, for something that's going to be sort of informal, this sounds like a very formal sort of title, um, you know, even with a subtitle built into it. I mean, really what I should have called it is How I Learned to Read Yeats in the Australian Outback, um, because that's really what it's about. Um, I'm, I, what, I'm interested in this set of ideas, and it's very, this, this talk is very much in a kind of interrogatory mode. I'm trying to figure something out here. I'm trying to put some pieces together. So I, 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 it's about an idea I'm trying to work out. I'm trying to triangulate something. And, and I'm hopefully in articulating it and saying it out loud, it will become a bit sort of clearer. The story starts with, like so many things started in the past number of years, with a Zoom call. Um, around about this time last year, I was, I was going to Australia. I was going to uh, Melbourne, George Fellow University of Melbourne. And because I was going to Australia, I, I, I called a friend of mine, Genevieve Bell, who um, runs the School of Cybernetics in uh, the Australian Uni National University of Canberra. I said, Genevieve, I'm you know, in Australia. Um, I know Canberra is not Melbourne, but look, you know, maybe I can come up and you know, get together and I can do a talk or something for you. And so that led to a series of Zoom calls with Genevieve, on one of which I, I, get, I, I get a quite excited message from her. You know, that one talk later on. So I get the Zoom call, and herself and her colleague Andrew Mayers are on the call. And Genevieve says to me, we're going to send you some GPS coordinates, and I want you to put it into Google Maps. So I did. <laughs> and my first impression was that I had broken Google Maps. <laughs> I was going to have to confess I'm the guy that broke Google. Because when I look at it, the GPS coordinates they gave me for Strangway Springs show that. 
had absolutely nothing else around it. And Genevieve said, we think you need to go here. And that's where we went. Strangway Springs is, well, if you're going to describe somewhere as the middle of nowhere, this is it. Um, Strangway Springs is one of a series of what were called repeater stations that were put in place when the Australian Overland Telegraph was built in 1871-1872. Now, the reason the Australian Overland Telegraph, Telegraph was built was because in 18, by about 1870, most of the world was wired. A lot of the world was wired, right? That the, the first stable transatlantic telegraph is in place by 1866. Europe's connected with North America. There are kind of waves around to connect to South America. Much of Asia is connected through telegraphs that run through the Suez Canal and other places. But Australia had problems. At the centers of population were Sydney here and Melbourne down here. And at this point, Melbourne was on its way to being as big as New York. But the telegraph that connected it to the rest of the world came ashore here in Darwin. And so between an Adelaide here, obviously, so, so between Adelaide, Melbourne, and Sydney, where all the people lived, and where the telegraph came ashore here, there was this, which at that point in 1871-72, there had been all, actually had been no non-European peoples through there. Now, there have been lots of other peoples, Aboriginal peoples, and I'm going to come back to them in a moment, but in 1871-72, the only sort of Europeans who had gone into there had basically not come back. And there's a whole series of narratives of people with broken wills and so on who head into the bush and just are never seen again. So building a telegraph through here was no mean feat. But they did it. And this is one of the places they built the telegraph station was there, Strangway Springs, which now looks like this. What prompted the thoughts that I'm trying to develop today come from the experience of being there in the Australian outback. And this juxtaposition of a very particular kind of landscape with what was in 1870s, the cutting edge of communications technology. Because at the point that this particular telegraph station was connected in 1871-72, this place here was one of the most connected places in all of Australia. It was suddenly connected to all of the rest of the world. And one of the things that constantly puzzles and amazes me in our contemporary moment is how we are right now always connected to everywhere else in the world. This sense of being simultaneously here and everywhere. And what kind of worries me is that we've actually become used to it. It's become normal. So these earlier technologies, for me, have the effect of making it strange again. How bloody weird it is that I've got a device I can put in my pocket that I can open up and look at you know, a traffic cam in Hong Kong and see traffic in real time. I mean, that's strange. But we've become used to it. So this, places like this remind me of the strangeness of at the same time, that landscape that is all around a place like Strangway Springs gives you a sense of another time scale, a bigger time scale. 
And so part of the problem, part of the thing that Genevieve and her colleague Andrew Mares and I were trying to figure out was how do you see this? That technology has become invisible to us. The kind of sublime effect of technology that we live with every day has become invisible. So how do you see it? Well, Andrew, her colleague, is a photographer. Um, he, was, he was a press photographer for many years. He was the, um, actually was the editor, photography editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, she has shot some amazing press photography. So Andrew was with us, and he was, this is one of his photos. He was helping us try to see. And we were doing things like, for instance, going back to some of the images that the first people who surveyed the telegraph line drew. This is a man named uh, Benjamin Herschel, Herschel Babbage drew this. Um, and this is, this, is, this is Strangways. Babbage is interesting, actually, because his father, Charles Babbage, is one of the people who does the basic mathematics of underlying contemporary computing. But he ended up in the outback surveying. The funny thing is that could be anywhere. Yeah. And when you look at glass plate photographs of places like Strangways in the 1870s and 1880s, again, you don't have that sense of immensity or scale. And we were trying to work this out. And one of the tools we used was we got a, had our own glass plate camera, the hood and the whole lot. And Andrew was taking pictures of this landscape using glass plate photography trying to determine how the way of seeing that the glass plate photography um, induced forced you to see this landscape in a very, very particular way. But one of the things that this sort of forced us to recognize was just how inadequate these ways of seeing were. Because the landscape itself kept imposing itself upon us. This sense of scale. So, I started to try to figure out how, why is it particularly around the telegraph station that this sense of scale and of being in a landscape that is very old forced itself upon us. Because as you know, we've all been in landscapes like this, landscapes that have given us a sense of a particularly of a time scale that is more than human. There's something to do with that eruption of communications technology into the landscape has this effect. And that's a stump of a telegraph pole from 1870, still remaining there in the ground in the outback. I want to use a concept here then that comes from geology to try and help, help think about this. And I'm going to ultimately get from the last speakers that was bringing together science and technology, I'm ultimately going to get from geology to literature, so just bear with me. The concept is, is deep time, which was originally, originally comes from a Scottish geologist, um, James Hutton, who actually came up there in the, in, in, in the 18th century, or from 1788, where he started to realize that there are rocks that are below the rocks that are below the rocks, and he realized that there's levels of kind of time in Europe's history that are beyond what could be imagined. But the word has entered our contemporary discourse really from the work of John McPhee. And John McPhee is really interesting. He's a creative, he's a creative nonfiction writer. And McPhee spent time with geologists in the United States and wrote a trilogy of books that he calls the Annals of the Former World. And he won the Pulitzer Prize for this. And McPhee describes that sensation of kind of being in the landscape, of being somewhere like the Grand Canyon, 
and seeing these levels, these strata of geological time, and having this sense of time you know, extending out further than you can imagine. And he says, and this is from Basin and Ridge, 1981, people think in five generations, two behind, two ahead, with heavy concentration on the one in the middle. Possibly that is tragic, and possibly there is no choice. The human mind may not have evolved enough to be able to comprehend deep time. It may only be able to measure it. On a geologic time scale, he says, a human lifetime is reduced to a brevity that is too inhibiting to think about. Think about our lives as just this little dot in that kind of great scale of time. The mind blocks the information. Geologists, always dealing with deep time, find it seeps into their being and affects them in various ways. And the philosopher David Wood, who writes about time in quite interesting ways, says, cosmic deep time is made up of different levels of deep time. These include ages, epochs, eras, periods, aeons, super aeons, each larger than the next. They cover the creation of the universe. 13.8 billion years. The solar system, 5 billion. The Earth, the leftovers from the creation of the sun, 4.54 billion. And then the formation of the moon. Life began from 0.5 billion to 1.5 billion later. Early hominids appeared about 2 million years ago, while Homo sapiens emerged about 250,000 years ago. The Holocene saw the development of modern civilization starting, he says, some 11,700 years ago, and you could dispute that. What's interesting with this sense of embedded time is now that we have started to think from the perspective of the Anthropocene, we're able to actually take the Holocene and bracket that and say there's another strata, that's another level of soil, another level of, 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 of geological time almost. So deep time is both unthinkable, which immediately makes it interesting, and it's relative, which seems like a contradiction, that if something's unthinkable, it shouldn't be relative, but it is. It's nested, to use David Wood's term. There's a kind of nesting that happens with geological time. Now, this image here, when I look at a telephone or a telegraph pole or the remnants of one from the Australian Overland Telegraph in the 1870s in the desert, in the middle of the desert, the Australian desert, what I'm seeing here is another kind of embedded deep time, what Siegfried Zielinski calls the deep time of the media. That we live so immersed in a particular kind of media envelope at the moment digitally connected envelope, that earlier forms of media communication have the effect of being a kind of deep time. And Zelinsky says, when we go back to them and credit their strangeness, it's probably the best way I can put it, credit their strangeness, what we experience is something like that, an analogous feeling to that effect of experiencing deep geological time, that sense of that vertiginous sense of things falling away. And when I start to look at these images, this one in particular is from a telegraph pole from the 1870s that collapsed along the track of a railway. 
Um, and this has become actually a cattle or, or a sheep trail as well. But just the way in which a landscape is you know, swallowing up the artifacts of this particular um, communications media that was kind of cutting edge in its time. And those, these kinds of images of the kind of images of this, of the, of this, this kind of media moment, this deep time media moment embedded in another kind of deep time, seem to me to suggest that when you bring these two things together, when you have that triangulation, something happens. Something that we have to try to understand in terms of time being scaled. The image that really captures this for me is this one that Andrew took using a drone. Um, what we're looking at here is the track where the Overland Telegraph originally ran. Um, this is um, now a that's a fence. There's a road. Um, the track, what, what we have sort of running along the side of it, and you can sort of see it there, is actually an Aboriginal trail that Aboriginal people started to use the telegraph because the bushes were cut away as, as, as a kind of walking trail. So you get kind of Aboriginal trail built into this. Um, and buried underneath this, right, running right along here, is a fiber optic cable. So you have these kind of levels, these strata, and it's the same sort of thing that you see when you're looking at a rock and you're looking at the strata. And the thing that makes me particularly, that triggers something with this for me, is the Aboriginal trail, which you can kind of just see that kind of runs through there. Because when you're in that landscape in the Australian Outback, on one hand, if you look at Google Maps, you see nothing. You look at the kind of photographs Andrew takes, you see this vast expanse of emptiness. But you're also aware that there are people for whom this country is far from empty. That every little, every rock, certainly every spring, every creek, has not only a name, but has a story and has a history. That there's a connectedness of the country, of the landscape, to what we call call landscape, what the Aboriginal peoples would call country, um, there's a connection to time and to narrative. So where we were in Sprangway Springs is in Arabana country, which is that's the Arabana people are there, um, the, the, the Aboriginal peoples there. And we know from <coughs> Aboriginal works that there are ways of, of, of actually describing, of narrating this country very complex and very sophisticated ways to do it. Um, this is the work, uh, uh, Damien Yoki Marks are not Arabana, but this is the kinds of works that, are, that, that, that Aboriginal artists do, where this looks to us, if you just said, what is that? You said it's an abstract image. It's actually not an abstract image. Um, these are water holes. This is a particular kind of water hole. Each one of these little images, these shapes, means something. This is a map. This is a map. Now, it's a really interesting time to go to Australia right now because crediting this way of reading the country is becoming something, is, 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 is happening at a scale that has not happened in the past. You know, if I had been giving this talk in Australia, I would have started with an acknowledgement of country, of who the traditional owners of the land are. 
And that may sound like a kind of just a kind of ceremonial gesture, but it's not. It changes the way you look at the place you are and the time scales involved in that place. Um, the other thing is it changes the way you look at the landscape. Once you look at a painting like this, with these sort of lines, for instance, here, these yellow lines, and then you go look at a particular piece of landscape, these are sulfur tracks where there's little lines with little streams in the desert that make up sulfur, you realize, actually, this is realist painting. This isn't abstract at all. So that there are ways of seeing and ways of narrating this particular countryside. Everything starts and ends with country in the Aboriginal worldviews, as Margot Meal, who's Aboriginal herself. Yet there are no endings in this worldview, nor are there any beginnings. Time and space are infinite and everywhere, emanating from country, which some refer to as the dreaming. So in Aboriginal culture, there is this connection between what I've been talking about as deep time, this sense of a past that goes way, way back. Aboriginal people say, we have always been here. It's not that there's a starting point, we have always been here. That goes way, way back. And the land around us, that experience of landscape. And there's a whole group now of Aboriginal writers who are really doing interesting things with this. Thinking people like Margot Neal, uh, Tyson Yonka Porta. But the book that probably has had the biggest impact is one um, that was published in 2018 by Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu. And even the title of the book gives you a sense of how these thinkers, Aboriginal thinkers, are shifting perspectives. The title of the book, Dark Emu, comes from the Aboriginal way of reading the sky. That when we look at a constellation, we say, oh, the Big Dipper, it's made up of those you know, seven stars. The Aboriginal way of reading the sky is not to look at the stars, but to look at the dark space between them. So the constellation of the Dark Emu isn't made up of the stars, it's the black space in the middle. It's this reversal, sort of a foreground and background. What's interesting with Pascoe's work is that he has extended the historical timeline of Aboriginal culture far beyond where we used to think about it. If, and, and, and this has an effect now when you read histories, like quite good histories of Australia from 15 years ago, this, the opening chapter seems to be date. The original thinking was the Aboriginal peoples came to Australia 68,000 years ago. Pascoe has been able to show that things that we, people thought were axes for combat were actually hoes. And some of these go back 40,000, in some cases 65,000 years. So what we have in Aboriginal culture in Australia is a continuous civilization that goes back 65,000 years, at the very least. And there are languages that are probably 20,000 years old. Now, what we're experiencing here, when, when, when you say that, is a kind of human deep time. Is an experience, I think, of a particular kind of human deep time. But suddenly, human civilization seems to go back much, much further than we had thought. And this is finding its way into, he said, reaching for a prop, into some of the really interesting Aboriginal fiction that's happening. This is um, Alexis Wright, the real godmother of Aboriginal fiction at the moment. Um, this is her latest novel from earlier this year, Praiseworthy. So, dust storm happens in an Aboriginal town, and it just won't leave. This was how the dust storm lingered for so many years and became a stationary presence 
pivoting over the spinifex land of the zeitgeist were those strugglers of apocalyptic times, the traditional landowners in this isolated place of flatlands, were continuing their long line of imaginings into infinity. Yes, these people looked like they were raised to the ground people, yet why would they give up easily? Millennia of their ancestors never did, simply because they not only had the will to live, but desired survival over extinction. And now they were ready and able to gamble any wishful thinking for ridding themselves of the haze scourging the skin from touching the skin of their land. What's happening, I think, is one of the things happening in Australia, apart from the simple and very, very important matter of social justice, is that Aboriginal ways of seeing time are starting to coincide with things that have become very urgent for us that cluster around that word, the Anthropocene. The idea that we need to see what we do as humans here on this earth in a much bigger, bigger time scale. So that, to me, is the problem. Well, the problem in terms of the question, the research question. But it poses two, two questions for me. On one hand, on an experiential level, I could stand somewhere like Strangway Springs and realize I need to speak of the time. And particularly when that site, like Strangway Springs, has the juxtaposition or the eruption of a moment in technologies of communication that produce another kind of deep time coinciding with the two things, I really feel the need to find a way of articulating this. And I can point to Aboriginal cultures plural, in all the diversity and complexity, and say, there's a way of doing that. But that will never be my way of seeing it. I will never own that, nor would I want to, nor would I, I mean, this was beyond simple kind of cultural appropriation. This is, this is not something I can own, but I can read it. I can encounter it. I can see it. And so the tie, the word that, the phrase, and the concept that I've been trying to work towards to describe that, let's call it arm's length relationship to a particular experiential mode that somehow is adequate to that experience of deep time that I've been working towards is the idea of the deep time encounter. It's not deep time experience for me looking at landscape in terms of Aboriginal culture, but knowing how they see, I'm encountering there's an arm's length thing there. And that, I think, in turn, is generative of literature. It's certainly what happens with John McPhee, who I said is, you know, he's not a geologist, he's a journalist. He spends time, a whole lot of time, with geologists out in the, in, in, in the American Midwest and comes up with this concept of deep time. But the more I start to think about it, the more I start to think, well, I've seen this before. This looks familiar. And that brings us back to Ireland. A little earlier this year in May, um, my Australian friends Genevieve and Andrew um, came, came over to Ireland. Um, they're still chasing telegraph lines. They're actually been in Wales with the telegraph that goes to Australia and left. And I said, well, come on over. No, no, it's come on. I said, you know, come on over here. We'll, 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 we'll find some telegraph sites here. So we went west, 
you. And where we went was just outside Clifton. So just to orient yourself, Google Maps could all these wonderfully uh, useless things. There aren't bare cards in it. There's Clifton, right? So there's the town of Clifton. Um, where we went was, it's called Derry Gimla, but ju that's just for want of the fact that there's nothing else there. Derry Gimla is the nearest townland. We basically went here, a kind of bog in the middle of Connemark. And the reason we went there was because of this man, very dapper in his coat and hat, um, Marconi. Because Marconi initiated a moment, something like the one we're in at the moment in terms of technology, in that he created something absolutely world-changing without understanding how it works. A bit like AI at the moment. That Marconi, I mean, he didn't actually have a science degree or training in science, but he had smart, and he had leisure, um, and he used to go to lectures, and he went to a lecture where somebody sent a radio signal from one lecture theater to the next, and he wondered to himself, well, if we go from here to that lecture theater, maybe even go a bit further. So he had a villa in Italy, which always helps, and he sent it from his villa to the next villa he sent a signal. And he kept sending the signals further and further and further, until finally, December 1901, he set up a long, tall mast on the coast of Wales, and he got a friend, sent up a kite in St. John's, Newfoundland, and sent a signal across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, he had a theory of how the radio signal could do that without going into, this, into, the, into the solar system disappearing. He was dead wrong, but it worked. So he realized you could send wireless signals across the Atlantic Ocean. So he also realized there was commercial so it took six years, but he, his, on his mother's side, he had Irish connections. His mother was one of the Jameson Stillman people. That's where the money came from. Um, I always think I've contributed to, you know, every time I had a Jameson, I was contributing <laughs> to this, this, this history of telecommunications. I'm a big contributor. Um, and his wife, uh, Beatrice O'Brien, was, was actually the daughter of the Earl of Lynch Quinn. So he had lots of Irish connections. So he acquired about 325 acres of bog land in Derry, Yuma, we saw it. And what he built was absolutely incredible. This, here's a picture of it. Here's the station. Here you see the aerials. Here are the huts. And he built the world's first transatlantic wireless station. It got reported on in the November uh, 23rd, 1907 issue of uh, Scientific American. This, it's called the air tuning condenser. I showed this to a friend of mine who's an engineer. He said, that's the tuner. You don't like it on your radio. Yeah, well, this, this is how big the thing had to be. Um, and here are the pictures from Scientific American. And they describe how big this thing was that he built in, 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 in um, Capitola. One of our illustrations shows the condenser building. Um, this would be this picture here. That's the condenser building. Uh, with the antenna network to the rear. The OPC comprise, comprises a number of tall masts, eight in number, reaching a height of 200 feet. So you get eight masts, 200 feet high. Supported by these masts are 52 wires. So they change how the pellet back number of wires, which cover a rectangle of 200 feet wide and nearly 1,000 feet in length. Okay, so this is, this is an aerial that's like 1,000 feet long and 200 feet wide. At the forward end of, the, of this rectangle, the wires are brought together to form a fan, 
carried down to a single cable which enters the rear of the condenser house as shown in another of the illustrations. So there it is there. So there's all your wires coming in to go down into the condenser house where that tunnel thing that you saw was. Yeah. And it's, this takes a huge amount of juice, huge amount of power. This is 1907. There's no electricity. So they build their own electricity generating station on the site and they power it with turf, peat, of which they go through tons, thousands of tons every month. They hire, they employ about 150 people from the local area, more or less cutting turf full time to keep this thing going. If they're pumping so much electricity through the wires that they light up at night. Imagine how surreal this must have been. 1907, in the middle of a bog in Connemara, there is no electricity around for a long, long way. And the night sky is lit up by this array field made up of wires running a thousand, a thousand feet that light up at night and spark and make noise. Kind of sparkly kind of sound. That's what he built. And in fact, it got bigger. This was the first iteration, a thousand feet. And then it went out to another thousand, eventually out to a kilometer. So you basically had an aerial in the middle of the countryside, a thousand feet, or basically a kilometer long. He later built another one on a, on a, on a, on a hillside, a mountaintop nearby, which we found. Everybody said it was lost, we found. But this, this, so this thing was there in the middle of Connemara in 1907. And again, if you look at the landscape around, this is, and, and actually the, the footings for the masts are still there in, in, in the bog. This is your landscape. This is where the generator was, and the remains of the generating station. This is ecological damage. This is what happens when you cut several thousand tons of turf a month to power the generating station. The landscape all around looks like this. Um, and this is what the whole thing looks like from the air. Um, so these even those little dots there are actually where the footings for the, the array field for the aerial were. And that's the transmitter house. So this is this is what the landscape looks like. So once again, I thought, okay, this is why when I was in the Australian Outback. Scrambling Springs, I felt something familiar. It's this convergence of this landscape that seems to speak to me of deep time because of the type of landscape it is, something to do with vastness, something to do with the what seems to be lack of human intervention, although there's quite a bit of human intervention there, um, and the juxtaposition of that with this early moment of telecommunications technology that produces that effect, that Zelensky's effect of the time of the media. And as I was standing looking at this, this site, I thought, there's something else going on here. And the fact that I do actually teach Irish literature suddenly came up from deep inside. You wouldn't think I had anything to do with literature with what we talked about the last little while. And I thought, 1907. Of course, 1907, at the same time that Marconi pulls the switch and sends these first messages across the Atlantic Ocean from, from a bog in Connemara, 1907 is when John Millikan Singh's Playboy the Western World premieres. And of course, John Millikan Singh's Playboy the Western World, there's where the Marconi station is, is based on a story set here in Ackle Island. The other thing that Singh publishes in 1907 is the book that he writes about the Aran Islands here, based on his journeys there over a series of summers um, going back a few years earlier. So 
If you looked at Irish literature for this period and asked what's happening in Connemara, you get Christie and Begin, and you get Mora and Barclay and the Riders of the Sea from 1904, from primary 1904. So I thought to myself, what's going on here? Or even if you look at Singh's photographs, these are in the library here in Trinity, Singh's photographs of Aaron from around this same time looked like this. And it's this sense of a landscape and a way of life that has been there almost indefinitely, this deep time sense, which jars very, very much with that sense of Marconi's transmitter out in the middle of the field. And the more I start to think about it, I kept coming back to something that Yeats wrote, and I thought, okay, maybe this is where my deep time encounter idea came from. Because Singh wasn't the only person who was a dropping around Economara in these years. So was Yeats, so was Andy Gregory, so Carlos Hyde, so were a lot of people. But Yeats, in the collection he publishes a little bit earlier, 1893, The Celtic Twilight, talks about collecting folk stories. And this actually, this essay is originally 1901, so it's a bit later. But it's after he's met Lady Gregory and they're, 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 they're walking around the borough and collecting folk stories. And he says this, last night I went to a wide place in the Kiltartan Road to listen to some Irish songs. The voices melted into the twilight and were mixed into the trees. And when I thought of the words, they too melted away and were mixed with the generations of men. Now it was a phrase, now it was an attitude of mind, an emotional form that had carried my memory to older verses, or even to forgotten mythologies. And he goes on, he says this, there is no song handed down among the cottages that has not words or thoughts to carry one as far. For though one can know but little of the ascent, one knows they ascend like medieval genealogies through unbroken dignities to the beginning of the world. And I thought to myself, this is a deep time encounter. This is Yeats going out into the countryside hearing a story and not just saying, this story is taking place here, being told to me here and now, but the words of this story actually take me back. They ascend, like medieval genealogies, to the beginning of the world. And that is almost like a definition of the experience of deep time, of going back beyond what you can imagine. But at the same time, Singh and Yeats, I mean, all their accounts of gathering folks stories, it is that same arm's length relationship. Singh's book, The Aaron Islands, is a wonderful account of somebody who's living amongst people who are telling him things, but he knows he'll never be part of them. Yeats is gathering folk stories with Lady Gregory. They are always, you know, the gentry out walking around, talking to people in the cottages. They are always at arm's length relationship from them. It's an encounter. It's a deep time encounter. And I suppose the idea that I'm trying to work towards is that the deep time encounter, that recognition of a way of articulating something that seems beyond the limits of articulation, but which comes from a cultural formation that can never be your own, what that can be generative of is a certain kind of literary response. And it's where literature comes in that literature allows us to actually 
um, find a way of articulating that deep time experience without claiming it, that we can just encounter it. Now I'll leave it there because I think I've pushed this just a little far enough. <laughs>